Hello and welcome to episode 461 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear, Monster Kid Radio. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I'm excited to have you here because this episode is one that I've been planning for a while. In fact, I probably waited just a tad bit too long because I really wanted to get this done before the new Invisible Man film came out. But you know what? Timing just didn't work out, and here we are after The Invisible Man came out, after announcements have been made about the status of the so-called Dark Universe. But it is what it is, and I hope you enjoy the conversation that I'm going to have with Joshua Kennedy, Christopher R. Mim, and Stephen D. Sullivan. That's right. It's a roundtable discussion with the four of us talking about what we think went wrong and what possibly could be done differently and how we'd even relaunch Universal's Dark Universe. Now, I know that a lot of news came out not too long ago, like within the past week, about what Universal is now doing with their Dark Universe films and that whole property, and is it a series or a franchise, or is it not? This recording took place before all of that, so if we talk about some things that just aren't in place anymore, please bear with us. I still think it's a fun conversation. I had a blast anyway, and I think I can speak for the other three guys when I say that they had a good time too. Now, of course, this wouldn't be an episode of Monster Kid Radio without Kenny's look at famous monsters of Filmland. He's going to do that as well. He's going to take a look at how Universal was represented in the magazine. It's a really cool segment. I think you're going to dig that one as well. Before we get to all of that, I just want to remind you about the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. Monster Kid Radio is up for Best Multimedia, so please consider voting for us. Just send an email to David, who is the man running the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. His email address, I'm going to make sure in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net, but I'll give it to you right now. It's T as in Tom, A-R-A-C as in Cat, O at AOL.com. You can check out the entire ballot for the Rondo Awards. Again, follow the link in the show notes. You don't have to vote in every category, but if you do vote in the multimedia category, please consider voting for Monster Kid Radio. And hey, while you're at it, for Best Independent Film, maybe Joshua Kennedy's House of the Gorgon, gotta represent the Monster Conservancy. You know what I'm saying? What's the Monster Conservancy? Well, head over to SaveMonsters.com and you'll find out. I'm honored to be on the ballot with my fellow Conservancy member, Josh, House of the Gorgon was something I got a chance to work on, and it really is an amazing movie. Unfortunately, Christopher R. Mims' most recent film didn't make the ballot, but you can always do a write-in. So, again, got to represent the Monster Conservancy. Got to represent the Dark Universe, and we're going to do all of that right after this. From the depths of doom comes the most fearful monster of the ages to strike with paralyzing terror the despoilers of ancient tombs. Here is new horror by the master of menace, Lon Chaney as the mummy, with Dick Foran, John Hubbard, Ellis Knox, George Zuko, Wallace Ford, Turon Bay, in the mummy's tomb. that's been alive for over 3,000 years is in this town. 
and it's brought death with it. We've got to run it down. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Twenty years ago, in the barony of Frankenstein, a monster created by man stalked through the country, meaning and killing. In time, Frankenstein, maker of the monster, died. The monster disappeared. Now, after 20 years, the son of Frankenstein returns. And fear grips the village anew. A man tainted by the blood of his father can forget his human soul and carry on the diabolical work of the Frankenstein. As a man, I should destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. Benson, turn on the generator. Produced on a vast scale, Universal Son of Frankenstein presents the most fearsome cast in the history of the screen. Basil Rathbone. In his heart, warm human emotions. In his mind, the monster mania. It's alive. Alive, you mean? Yes, alive, but alive. I thought you said our experiments I know, were... I know. I too thought that we failed, but we haven't. I've actually seen it walk. Karloff, rising from the past to spread new terror. Lugosi, sinister, mysterious, evil. You see that? They hanged me once. Lionel Atwill, grim hatred in his blood. One doesn't easily forget, Herr Baron, an arm torn out of the roots. Josephine Hutchinson, her young beauty a magnet to the menace around her. I hate it here, Wolf. I'm terribly afraid all the time. I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Where is this monster? Where is he? I'll stay by your side until you confess. And if you don't, I'll feed you to the villagers.
Monster Kid Radio heads, this is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. For this edition dedicated to Universal Studios' Dark Universe, I want to examine an article from FM 186 from August of 1982, which is a brief history of Universal Monster Movies up till that time. It is entitled Universally Yours, Monarch of Imagine Movies, and it was written by Ronald Norman Waite. It is six pages long and loaded with 12 pictures. Here is how it was introduced. Unholy Three, Night Monster, I Saw What You Did, Valley of Mystery, Earthquake, Revenge of the Creature, She-Wolf of London, Andromeda Strain, London After Midnight. What do these varied movies have in common? Universal. For years, the reigning king of the monster films and still going strong, from the silent years featuring the great Lon Chaney Sr. to new thrills and chills reaching movie screens around the world. The article continues with a paragraph-long look at milestones from Universal's history, starting with The Climax and Unholy Three, and continuing on with Dracula, Frankenstein, Murders in the Rue Morgue, The Old Dark House, The Invisible Man, Flash Gordon, Tower of London, The Wolfman, and Phantom of the Opera. It then had this to say about Universal Films from the 50s. By the 1950s, monsters were becoming a thing of the past and even Universal was beginning to switch to sci-fi related material, producing many such films during the decade. In 1950, Abbott and Costello in the Foreign Legion premiered. It was a typical farce, not very exciting, and only a true monster fan could pick out one of the characters who went on to play in assorted, dismal productions, including Plan 9 from Outer Space. He was none other than Tor Johnson, who played Abu Ben in this film. Superstar Clint Eastwood, loved by millions for his cowboy and down-home roles, a ruggedly handsome actor who writes, directs, and produces nowadays. We all know him. He has one thing in common with fellow actor Jack Nicholson. They both got their start in horror films. Jack, as we know, appeared in Roger Corman's thrillers such as Little Shop of Horrors and The Terror. He was later masterful as the deranged Jack Torrance in The Shining. As for Clint Eastwood, he turned up twice in 1955 in two Universal movies called Revenge of the Creature and Tarantula. The article steps back with a tribute to the Cheneys and the film Man of a Thousand Faces, the Lon Chaney biopic featuring James Cagney. It continues with a brief look at the birds and skullduggery, which featured modern stars Veronica Cartwright and Burt Reynolds. It concludes with this look at 70s classics I saw first run as a kid. They have a special place in my heart and memory. Kerwin Matthews had made his mark as Sinbad in Ray Harryhausen's Sedmum Voyage of Sinbad. Then in 1973, he turned into a different kind of role, Wolf. In The Boy Who Cried Werewolf, what starts out as a quiet camping trip turns into a nightmare for the family when Pop is bitten by a wolfman. In keeping with tradition, he too turns into a wolf and terrorizes the countryside. Universal has cried wolf for years and this was another feather in their cap, or wolf in their bane. Also in 1973, they released that slithering cinema adventure with the title you don't say, you hiss. It was far from being a classic, but nevertheless, an interesting excursion into the world of snakes. It spawned a collection of actors as well who went on to bigger and better things. The hapless lad who became the King Cobra was played by Dirk Benedict, who went on to the far reaches of outer space aboard Battlestar Galactica. 
his girlfriend, played by Heather Menzies, turned up in the TV version of Logan's Run. And circus man Tim O'Connor leaped into the future as Buck Rogers' friend Dr. Uhr in Buck Rogers, the TV version. It just goes to show you, you never know who you're going to find in those old movies. And it's still going on today. Here's a tip for John Landis and Steven Spielberg fans. Look for Steven in The Blues Brothers and Landis in 1941. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. The monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. <laughs> to shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. Elizabeth! To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about, the spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! Dr. Tongues, I had that shot. 7129 Northeast Fremont Street. Vintage goofiness from years gone by. Sci-fi and fantasy memorabilia. We specialize in things your mother threw away. And some she didn't. Dr. Tongues Toys. In 1972, American TV networks canceled 12 TV shows for crimes they didn't commit. These shows were promptly forgotten by the public and faded into obscurity. Today, Chris Cooling researches these shows for a podcast. If there's a TV show that no one else remembers... And if you have earbuds, maybe you can listen to Forgotten TV. Here is all you've ever wanted in entertainment in one superb show. Here is matchless story, suspenseful, terrifying, never so thrillingly presented. Here in breathtaking Technicolor, is superb spectacle and splendor and romance. Here is a chorus of a hundred voices, a ballet of a hundred dancers, a cast of a thousand, starring Nelson Eddy in his most vigorous performance, lovely Susanna Foster, and Claude Rains in the most coveted role of the year as the Phantom of the Opera. My music, you've stolen it! You've stolen my music!
Eisenhower. <laughs> that the point of monsters. <laughs> speaking of, speaking monster, of monster right. team-ups. Yeah. <laughs> Ike versus something. All right. Oh, I, I, I want to see that. Whatever it's forming, an idea maybe forming. We have to be real careful about the things we throw out because at least two of you will immediately start thinking about how to make it happen. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know. I, I'm thinking all four of us. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be. Um, That's This right. is going to be interesting. Our first collaboration: Ike versus the something monster. What's the monster? Come on, guys. What do we got? It's it's got to be a giant robot made from oh, yeah. the Soviet Union. Literally yeah. the industrial, industrial, military, industrial complex. That's the yes, that's it. <laughs> See, that's the whole movie right there, right there. And, and Mark gets to play Mike. <laughs> shave his head; he'd be perfect for it. I'll be honest. Mark doesn't really need to shave his shave his head anymore. It's well, you know up. what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been recording, and I'm going to open the show with that. Oh, great! <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mark listens. <laughs> oh man so here we are it's an episode of monster kid radio i don't know quite how it's going to go uh it's uh something that i've been kind of wanting to do for a while but again I, again i don't know how it's going to turn out uh, as soon as i started chatting with these guys they started talking politics instead of monsters so i have no idea <laughs> what i'm in for now and I'm, when i say politics i mean politics of the 50s and 60s not you know current because Derek, politics is the real monster oh that's good <laughs> All right, I'd like to introduce everybody to the crew. Uh, everybody knows me. I've already done my intro. I'm going to start. Let's see. Uh, I'm going to go with Steve first. We got Stephen D. Sullivan. How you doing, man? Hey, beauty for poor age, man. <laughs> doing well. Well, that, that's not quite how. Okay. See, I was going to go in descending order. You or know should what I'm I saying? say, that... I'm beautiful, man. <laughs> Either way, I'm in the middle. Works for me. That, that's right. That's right. We got that's the voice of uh, Christopher R. Mim, filmmaker, the man behind Saint Euphoria Pictures and a whole bunch of really cool movies. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing all right. My mind's going with this whole Ike versus the robot. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what 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 can we say that's going to come up? That's going to top that tonight. I mean, we we've we've already you know shot our shot. That's the best thing we're going to come up with. What can I mean, top that? Good. Let's be honest. <laughs> And that voice you just heard, that is a very busy man who is taking a break between shooting like seven or eight movies at once, Joshua Kennedy from Gooey Films. Hello, hello. <laughs> it's been way too long since I've had Josh or Chris on the show. Steve, you've been on more recently, but yeah, still, I love chatting with you guys. So this is going to be fun, I hope. <laughs> it oh, it'll be fun. All it already is. Together, it'll be fun. It's got to be magic. <laughs> It'll be fun for, for us. Hopefully the listeners enjoy it as well. So the reason I've assembled this group, the four of us are part of the Monster Conservancy. And of the four of us, we've got two filmmakers, one professional author, and, well, me. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about something that we all care about a lot, and that's the Universal Monsters and what's happening with the Dark Universe, what we would do differently. Is it even a thing anymore? Do we care? That sort of thing. And... That's kind of the chat that I want to have with you guys. So to begin with, just so we're all on the same page, where is it at right now? I mean, last thing was the mummy. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. And we all know who, how that went. <laughs> I um, liked it. I mean, I, it wasn't a classic universal film, but I enjoyed it. So, but as far as launching a universe... It didn't do any better than Dracula Untold, I don't think. Yes, that was 
the start apparently, or even the the Frankenstein movie that was. Oh, I can't even remember what the title was. Aaron Eckhart was in it. Was that part of the... They were trying to do that, or was that completely different? I don't think that was a universal yeah, film. I think that was a different different company. But you're right about the Dracula film. Dracula Untold was... At one point, it was going to be, and then it wasn't going to be, and then they decided it was going to be, so they rewrote part of the script and put the little stinger at the end credit sequence, and then just never went anywhere. Mm. And then they started again with The Mummy. Right. And now, that's the last we've heard of it. Right. Yeah, there, there was a pretty popular, that infamous, I suppose you could say, photo that they had of like Johnny Depp and Tom Cruise and uh, the woman who played the mummy. I can't remember her name. Uh, I think Russell Crowe was in the photo shoot as well. But that actually wasn't a real photo shoot. That was Photoshop. No way. Yeah, it was a bunch of individual photo shoots <laughs> all kind of put together. So if that, that that's kind of indicative, I think, of what happened with the Dark Universe. They couldn't get it all to come together. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, I mean, looking at that picture, it was kind of exciting, right? And all this talent involved. And, but apparently they weren't there. It was like the five doctors, Doctor Who, where the Tom Baker figure is actually Madame Tussauds wax figure. Because yeah. <laughs> Tom was not there. <laughs> Let's just say, in regards to the New York universe, mistakes were made. You know, I think the issue, just from the way I look at it, is that I did not like The Mummy. I found it entertaining. Right. Uh, I think the problem is, is the same problem that the DC universe had. They're like, well, Marvel did it, so we can totally do it. And so they almost treated it more like a superhero movie. Yeah. Uh, yep. And and that's where I think it lacked, is that uh, there were some some decent little horror elements in it, but I feel like they were just like, well, we have to get to our Justice League. We have to get to our Avengers, you know? One of the things I think that worked with the Marvel Universe in particular is that they started really small. And I think they should have started smaller. And, you know, just like, try and make one decent good movie that stands on its own, <laughs> that has a hint at the end that, oh, there's more, instead right. of like, okay, we're going to bring in multiple stuff and we're going to hint at all these other things. It felt cynical, and I think that's what the DC Universe maybe did wrong, too, is that they're just like, okay, we've had like one su Superman movie, we'll jump right to Justice League in two movies. You know, you got to build it up, and I think that's part of where they failed. But then again, they also made the movie, in my opinion, feel like a superhero movie and less of a, a monster movie. Yes. Mm -hmm. It was an action-adventure monster movie rather than a right. monster horror dark universe in, in the tradition of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, say. And I think right. that was the mindset that came from the Brendan Fraser mummy. Those three yes. movies were very much, you know, action-adventure movies, uh, you know, almost uh, Indiana Jones-esque. Uh, right. and, and they're like, well, we should, we should have some of that, because that worked. Uh, but we also need to have a little horror, so we'll make some scary stuff. But it also has to sort of be a superhero thing that's leading to all the other, you know... We got to throw in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Then we got to, you know, have the friend who's from American Werewolf in London who's a zombie. And let, let's throw in this and let's throw in. It was like a whole mixture of way too much stuff. The movie ran, what, an hour, 50 minutes, you know, just, just under two hours. And they just packed way too much into it. And something you said, Chris, and I think Steve said it too, it wasn't a horror movie. Right. If you look up the movie The Mummy on Wikipedia or the Internet Movie Database, which, you know, is never wrong. <laughs> the word horror is not mentioned anywhere in the description of the movie. Wikipedia says it's an action adventure. The IMDb says it's an action adventure fantasy. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're trying to launch a monster universe, you got to have something more than that. Right. If it's going to be the spiritual successor to the original black and white universal movies, then you need to have similar elements to those and not 
be worried so much about making a squillion dollars when you finally do House of Frankenstein down the road. I mean, part of the charm of those old films is they weren't thinking beyond this film. Now, clearly, Marvel, who had a great brain trust, still does, managed to sit down and plot a slow build, it was like, well, we've had a lot of crappy Marvel movies up to this point. Or, you know, maybe some not so crappy like like the Spider-Man Sam Raimi Like Howard stuff. the Duck. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> and we all remember the original Fantastic Four done by Roger Corman. So, anyway, <laughs> they sat down and they, they thought about it and took small steps. It was a five-year plan or whatever it was, a ten-year plan, I think, at this point, right? Rather than a two-year plan, which is what it seems like Universal was trying to do. It's like, we want to be as successful as Marvel, but we don't want to spend all the time and energy doing the build. Yeah. We want to jump from Iron Man to the Avengers. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about Iron Man leading into the MCU, my understanding is that there were no plans for an MCU. It was like, let's do Iron Man, see how it goes. And then it did well enough. So now let's start developing. I think they had thoughts that it might lead to other things right but there was no like let's do a bunch of universal building or universe universal building now universe building right now let's just focus on the film and that's that's i think what universal is getting wrong that's what boggled my mind i mean we we keep saying it it's the opening of the tom cruise mummy and we already have the logo for the dark universe i was like whoa 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 okay we're going real fit we're like jump diving right into the deep end with this and was that when they edited together all the clips from they made like some little trailer yeah that is that is that when it came out and they had the trailer of all the old stuff and but it was with like this intense action music do you know what i'm talking about I, I do. That was the sizzle reel that they released ahead of time to promote The Mummy. They had original music composed by Danny Elfman for it, which was kind of cool, I thought. And it ended with Dr. Pretorius at the end, you know, yes. the world of gods and monsters. I thought that was amazing. They referenced yeah. all these really cool monster movies that they made a movie of that couldn't be further from. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the exec didn't understand what they were doing. It's almost like you know, not to, to drag us out of the dark universe for for more than a couple of moments here, but the Kong universe that they the monster universe that they built with Godzilla and Kong, they've been more cautious with that, even though they've they too have tried to jump some steps as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's like we're going from Godzilla to Godzilla fighting Ghidra and a whole bunch of monsters to Godzilla fighting Kong. Oh, and there was a Kong film in there too. So they're trying to get the the big show off Godzilla versus Kong, Godzilla versus Ghidra very quickly, but somehow that seemed to work out a little better, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure why, but some of it was probably on its expectations. They were doing The Mummy as if it was going to be a logical extension of the Brendan Fraser movies, maybe more action, more of everything that was in the Brendan Fraser Mummy, which I liked. I liked the, the first Brendan Fraser movie. I liked it a lot. The second one, not so much. The third one, I liked better. But it's like they took everything on in that and hyped that up when that was really resting on the old Universal monster movies and then added some action in to kind of bring it bring it a little more up to date. But then they like decided they were going to hype that up even more when they did The Mummy. And I, I like The Mummy as an action-adventure movie with some monsters in it. I even enjoy the, you know, the, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing thrown into the middle of it. But it all seems 
forced and rushed in a lot of ways. Where the end of Iron Man, the connection to the Marvel Universe was Nick Fury showing up at the end of Iron Man, right? Mm -hmm. That was kind of the, oh, look, they're thinking ahead at the end of Iron Man. We get Nick Fury. And here we've got the entire monster fighting band led by Dr. Jekyll kind of crammed into the middle of this movie when it might have been much more effective to wait until the end and then reveal that, oh, that guy he's been talking to on the phone is actually Dr. Jekyll. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they just they went very big with it. Weirdly, because of uh, Derek's Monster Kid Radio and things they've been doing, I watched The Monster Squad and then Van Helsing last night, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which are related to this, and they're, they're both kind of monster mashes and combination of universe things. And The Monster Squad is really cool, but it's really lovingly made, and you can tell that. Whereas Van Helsing is almost like what Universal's doing, in that they're just throwing in everything that they want to do all at once and hoping some of it will stick. Part of me was pretty convinced watching Van Helsing that Steven Summers knew they weren't going to let him make another one of these movies. So he wanted to use every idea he had in Van Helsing. That's the kind of the, the feeling a lot of us got with watching The Mummy and watching, you know, the Dracula movie before that to some extent. Steven Summers, he directed the first two Mummy films with Brendan Fraser, didn't he? Yes. Okay. The Mummy seems more of a spiritual successor to his movies than it does to the original movies. Well, don't they even have a prop from the Brendan Fraser films in the archive that Jekyll and Hyde has? It's the big book that that has the, the scarab triangle thing. It's the Book of the Dead. And it's just for like two seconds, it just falls on the floor. And you're like, oh, hey, they're ripping off the ripoff of the ripoff. No. <laughs> <laughs> they want to do monsters, but they want them to be action monsters rather than horror monsters. That doesn't work really well. It works pretty well with Kaiju, with Godzilla as action based kind of thing but most monsters it's the creepy parts that you remember it's the the moon coming in the window of the crypt and larry talbot lying there enshrouded in wolfsbane and suddenly the moon strikes him and the the two crypt keepers are horrified that suddenly this dead guy is moving again that's what you think of when you think of universal horror you don't think of you know, wild chases on motorbikes or buses or whatever. <laughs> you said something about the Godzilla movies feeling like they're doing a better job at their universe building. And I would say, I think you're right. Uh, I don't know if they're 100% successful, but I think they're doing a lot better than Universal did. And I think a big part of the reason for that is that Legendary, which is a production company behind it, he's no longer there. But the person who was behind Legendary when they first started the Godzilla films, he was a tried and true monster kid. He was one of us. So he got it. Whereas The Mummy, 2017, yeah, you know, the director, Alex Kurtzman, he's come out and said, yeah, I love these movies, whatever. But then Tom Cruise gets involved and a ton of rewrites have to happen and a ton of other conditions have to be met for it to be a Tom Cruise film. So I feel like maybe he lost his way a little bit or his control a little bit. And who knows what would have happened if it was a different actor? Who knows? Maybe. But I, I also saw an interview with Tom Cruise right around the time it came out where he talked, either he knew and loved the monsters or he freaking studied for this because he was talking intelligently about the universal monsters and the, the traditions and that kind of stuff. Well, it's like, have you, you guys have seen, have seen the, the color remake of land of the lost, right? 
you've probably seen the yeah. Land of the Lost, the Charming Kids show about you know kids getting lost in the land of dinosaurs with you know science fiction lizard men and that kind of stuff. And then they do a the comedy. stacks, man. Those guys are great. The Slee stacks <laughs> are awesome. But then they do it as a movie, and suddenly it's a comedy, and it's just it's just a hot mess. But I, being insane, I listened to the director commentary, and the director loved the old series and talked knowledgeably about all the cool things in the old series. And part of me is going like, man, if you knew all this stuff, why did you ruin it? <laughs> well, that's a trend, though, too, when they take old TV shows and make a feature film out of them. They weren't all comedies. I mean, the Brady Bunch films were really high up on the comedy scale, whereas the original series wasn't. The Dukes of Hazard film, way high up. They had Johnny Knoxville, for crying out loud, but the original TV show wasn't. So that, that seems to be a trend, though, when it comes to television the programs anyway. Remade it as oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dark Shadows. <laughs> well, I wasn't, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't want to give that... Brady Bunch films. I mean, you got to look back. See, that's the problem is the Brady Bunch was really the first ones that sort of came out and did this, right? Where they took an old property like that and they turned it into a comedy and they sort of stuck them. What if the Brady's were now, but they were still like they were then? I mean, the Brady Bunch is not exactly uh, compared to some of this stuff, right? Is is mm-hmm. It was light, you know, afternoon television kind of stuff. You know, it's the stuff that people our age grew up with watching in reruns. Uh, well, everyone, but Josh, uh, but the, you know, <laughs> Derek and I watched the original runs too. Um, there was nothing quite particularly sacred about the Brady Bunch, right? It was right for the the way they made fun of it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was a comedy, so it was fine to play it that way, especially when you watch it now. And it's it's a very '90s movie. There's a lot of '90s niche '90s ish about it. But the problem is, is because that was like popular, you know, that did really well to enough that they made a sequel and. And so, like, well, every old cheesy show that we liked as kids needs the comedic reimagining. And then you do stuff like the Land of the Lost, and my God, they just missed the mark completely. Not to say that there aren't good things in what they've attempted, all right? But if if they were to hand this to me tomorrow, and by the way, The Invisible Man is uh, opening on February 28th, which is a week and a half away as we record this. But it may or may not be a dark universe film. I guess we'll find out when we go there and if the logo is up. I looked into it a little bit because I knew we'd be talking about this. And to a certain extent, at least based on interviews and things I've read, is that the, the, the Invisible Man, the way they're doing it, it is, in essence, a reboot of the reboot of the dark universe. But according to them, they want to approach it in much the same way that we said they probably should have, which was just make decent standalone stories. And if we can find stuff that would then connect later that's fine. And it sounds like that's the way they wanted to approach it. I don't know uh, sort of the Blumhouse route, if that's exactly the way I would want to go, but that's the route they're going. You know, if they want to throw little connections in, if they want to have Nick Fury show up at the end or Dr. Right. Jekyll show up at the end and say, I'm recruiting you for the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, <laughs> you know, which <laughs> basically what it seemed like they were doing um, a reference to Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, not necessarily the film, but <laughs> if they want to do that, I don't have a I don't have a problem with that. I don't have problem with laying foundations, and I fa- I think in fact, if you can do that as you're making successful individual films, I think that does end up making things richer. It's like. Um, when Hawkeye showed up in the, the first Thor movie, right? And it's like, oh my God, that's Hawkeye. And I don't even remember if they ever even called him Hawkeye, but 
those of us that are Marvel fans knew immediately who that guy with a bow that's cool. The trick Marvel did was making successful movies, making right. them every time. I was lucky enough to do the adaptation of that for children's books. So I actually had the script before anyone else saw or heard of it outside of the people actually doing it. It was really obvious, even from the, the script, that this was going to be a fabulous movie unless they screwed it up somehow. So that was the key, was that that was a, a terrific take on Iron Man, really well done at script level. And they had that stuff all there, and they had all the history of Stanley and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and company's Marvel stuff to play on. In theory, Universal could do the same thing. Their MonsterVerse is older than Marvel is. But is that part of the problem? Because Universal has not always been kind to their monster properties. They haven't developed them. They haven't been very good caretakers, even though they owned them. We don't see them being trotted out as often as like Marvel would re-release stuff or do new comics or whatever. We just haven't had the monsters get as much action, I suppose, as say like the Marvel works. Somebody will pick up a license for it and Target will release a mask for Halloween, right? Or the horrified board game that came out uh, last year or so. You know, somebody will pick up a license, which apparently I, I would imagine is not too expensive at this point to put something out. Every once in a while, we see a series of novels. You know, and that's about it. I do wonder when I think about this, if there's a little bit of when it comes to the universal monsters is that because they are older, right? And we're talking older that I think that people don't know necessarily what to do with them to entice modern audiences because horror has gone horror in particular has gone through such a, I think, a pretty drastic evolution in the last hundred years. And this is, this is what I was saying about sort of the Blumhouse thing is like, they're like the sort of hot crap when it comes to the studios or, you know, production companies out there making horror films. Uh, I mean, they just made that Fantasy Island movie, which completely flopped and looks, ha- you know, awful because they did it as a, speaking of, uh, weird. They should have did it as a comedy. <laughs> well, see, but the way they, they, they did it is like they made, you know, they're, they're going full on horror movie. The original idea behind Fantasy Island was supposed to be much darker than it ended up being. And it became popular uh, when it was less dark than sort of the pilot implied. And so I think by going back to the pilot and being like, you know, this is actually a pretty dark stuff. Let's really push that. They lost sort of the built-in audience that exists when you take an existing property and try to make it into something new and to reboot it. I think anyone who liked the sort of cheesy fantasy island that everyone sort of became known for uh, would never want to go see this movie. So it becomes, what's the point then in making it fantasy island? What is the point if you've changed it so much from what people kind of love about it? And that's part of the thing here is, you know, Universal Monster movies um, are very sort of specific in their tone and feel and, and look. And I think that when you think about sort of the last ones, which is what uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, right? Um, well, the last probably the Creature. Ones, I mean, I think yeah, the last yeah. big ones. And that's very specific of that particular era. It's very 50s in a lot of ways. Just being oh, yeah. a 50s monster movie, guy in suit. So I wonder if there is some issue in that people just don't know how to sell these iconic monsters to modern audiences. And I think you keep having these 
you know, studio execs who don't probably even understand them at all, they're like scary monsters, right? So we just throw some Tom Cruise in there and we're good. You know, and they just don't really understand what the hell they are and how they work. And then finding a way to translate that to modern audiences. And I think that's part of the issue that they're having with it. And to go back to Marvel, you know, part of the reason why I think Marvel movies work so well is that they are being taken care of by the people who understand them, uh, who know the stories inside and out, and they know which ones worked, which ones didn't, and they're using those and translating them with good talent, but they're still overseeing and being just like, you see some of these folks who they bring in and they're just like, yeah, it didn't work out because the people they brought in wanted to take it in a totally different direction. But in this instance, like, no, Marvel knows what they're doing. They know what they're going for. They know their source. And so when you have someone want to come in and, and maybe get away from, uh, you know, maybe they have their own ideas and they don't work out and they kick them out and they get someone else. I think with the Universal Monsters, I think that's been a lot of the big problem is that I don't think they've had anybody who gets in there and really understands it and can sort of sell it past the studio execs behind it and, and find a way that works. And maybe... Maybe this Invisible Man remake will actually do it, and it'll actually work on that level of of making sort of this retro thing appeal to modern audiences. But then, of all the ones they picked, it's probably the easiest of them, if you think about it. Because there's a lot of things you can do with the Invisible Man, and they flip the script, and like the, the Invisible Man is like bad guy, and it looks more like a remake of Hollow Man, right. to be honest. Right. Uh, so, yeah. I don't know. I think, but I think that's the biggest issue is just the trying to find a way to make the plotting Frankenstein's monster appeal and frighten uh, modern audiences. Right, and they they seem to have fixated on the the Fraser thing, the action of the Fraser right. thing, rather than the creepy moments of the Fraser thing, because action is in some ways, yeah, it takes more special effects and more stunt guys. But it's easier to do. It's, it's like very visual. So you have, you know, someone running to catch a bus. That's more interesting in an action sense than someone standing on a corner waiting for the bus as in cat people or something like that. Not to, you know, right. to jump into a different universe there, too. I think they're having trouble figuring out what they want it to be and what they're shooting for. And the trouble is that the audience that they have for this is a nostalgia audience but they keep trying to reimagine it as a modern thing. If I were approaching this, there's like a whole bunch of decisions I'd want to talk over with and decide with the people in charge before we made film one. You know, things like, are, are we doing supernatural? Are we doing science? Are we doing both? What time period are you setting it in? Is there going to be some kind of frame organization that's hunting monsters or dealing with monsters? Is there going to be something else? Is there going to be a mastermind bad guy? Are these reboots or are they sequels to the original Universal films? You know, even something as simple as, well, what ratings are we shooting for? I mean, probably PG-13 because everything seems to have to be PG-13 now. I don't know why they even have the PG rating for anything anymore. Yeah, it's really. Just, just get rid of it. Well, the ratings board is, you know, that's a whole other thing. But they've got so much material to deal with that there's plenty that they could do there. And even at this point where they've had two failed launches of Dark Universe, right? At, at least, I don't know if they consider them failed. Maybe they do. Certainly, for the consumer, they seem to have been failed. But even with that, 
you could keep the elements that you like from both of those films and then jettison or carefully write out the stuff that you don't feel is working as well. You know, if you want to have Russell Crowe playing Dr. Jekyll as the head of whatever their, their monster hunting organization was, I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea. I don't think they needed to introduce it as they did in the middle of another movie, you know? And I think they've made this mistake twice. I know everyone loves special effects, but you can't let monster movies be driven by special effects because then they do just become slugfests. Good monster movies have to combine some kind of special effects, whether it's Rico Browning in a skin-tight suit holding his breath so that you don't see any bubbles when he's swimming underwater or whether it's the latest cgi mummy unraveling itself you know those are really special and interesting but at the point where you have my infamous fisto bats in dracula or you have the sandstorm with the mummy's face then at that point your monster is not a a local creepy monster, your monster is Dr. Evil. Well, it, it turns them into supervillain. It's supervillain stuff then at that point. Well, that's yeah. exactly. They're Lex Luthor at that point. So are you saying, Steve, that you think the Dark Universe should instead start with the shape of water and go from there? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, was shape of water even a universal picture? No. Really what we've stumbled upon here is that the person who should be rebooting the entire Dark Universe is Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> I'm in. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm in. The man loves them. He respects them. Clearly, he loves the creature. So, uh, you know, I mean, I could have done without the weird fish sec stuff, but you know, to each its own. For century, I'm not going to judge. Right. <laughs> if we were doing that as the Dark Universe, I don't know if we'd had needed an explicit fish sex sequence or the song and dance number. The song and dance number was the best part of the movie for my, in my opinion. I thought that was awesome. <laughs> but I'll take oh, that man. over fist or bats. Yes, I will. Yeah. TM. But again, you know, in all of these failures, there's stuff to like. A part of the problem is that I'm not saying this is all the, the problem by any means but part of the problem is they're not willing to make a decision to freaking stick with it long enough to to really see if it works right. it's like we're going to try this for this movie oh that failed let's do something completely different not okay well what were the things in this movie that mm-hmm. worked what were the ones that didn't work how can we take the ones that worked and expand on them Assuming Fisto bats was the thing that worked, which is <laughs> maybe how we get the sandstorm sequence. Though I know that the sandstorm sequence was actually a reference to the the uh, Brendan Fraser mummy movie, yeah. in which the sandstorm was pretty cool. It was the first time we saw something at that scale in a mummy film, right. and and there was some spectacle involved. And I, yeah, we can own up to that. So yeah, that was kind of neat it to see. It was very neat. So yeah, there's potential there. But when you look at that from trying to build a universe. You know, once you've had Thanos, where do you go from there? And if you have Thanos in the first film, then you go, don't get to have him in the, the 20th or the 30th film or whatever they save Thanos up for in the Marvel right. Universe, right? So if yeah. Iron Man had fought Thanos right at the start, where do we go from there? And that's the problem with big, big special effects like that. Yeah. Well, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm super excited. Sorry to cut you off. 
Derek. No, please uh, do. Please. Because I had no idea. I'll just edit you out anyway. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had no idea the new Invisible Man was connected to the new Dark Universe or might be connected. Because when I saw the, the trailer for that, I got super excited that it was just so simple and small and low budget and doing everything that the latest mummy did. I, I think we all have, have nailed it down after talking about this. It was too big for the, the first, if this was going to be your first entry into this universe, it was way too big. Where, where do you build from Steve? You nailed it. It's like you, you had Thanos, you had the big exploding London and we got the, the wind and everything is so big. Where, where do you go from that? There's nothing to build. And so I'm super excited. Like I said, I had no idea this new invisible man was connected. I think that's, might be it's small and you can build on that if you're going to make that part of the the universe. So I I, I think it, you nailed it, Steve. It was, it was too big as chapter one. Think about that. That's what kind of boggles my mind. It's like it's like having the climax of your story in the first twenty five pages exactly, of a three hundred yes. page book. <laughs> what do you do yeah. with the rest? So as far as the Invisible Man's place in the Dark Universe, I don't even know if they're using the name Dark Universe anymore, but I do know that there have been talks about spinoffs from the Invisible Man, that there's talk of Elizabeth Banks doing a version of the Invisible Woman. Ah. Um, <laughs> so who knows what's going to happen there. And there was also talks of a Monster Mash movie and coming from Temple Hill Entertainment and Universal. And Temple Hill did the Twilight movies. So thumbs up, Um, (laughs) you know, to go back to what Josh was saying too, about how it looks like a smaller budget film. And maybe this is the way universal needs to go is to partner with some other studio like Blumhouse or Temple Hill or whoever, and kind of share the load and share the responsibility and share the oversight. I mean, you've got other people at Blumhouse that aren't so entrenched in the universal studio way of thinking of today maybe getting involved. So who knows? Maybe it'll be a good movie. I, I don't know. May I suggest getting involved? Perhaps Universal should contact Gooey Films. <laughs> throw that out there. Gooey Films or, or all for George Productions? I mean, I'm, I, we could team up. I mean, I could handle one movie. You could do the other one. We could work out. That sounds amazing. As long as Steve and I get to write stuff for it, I think we're good. Absolutely. And I get to do the sound effects. <laughs> Something. Uh, we'll get you in there somewhere. You know, the weird thing is that Universal's decision to go an action kind of way with these films, at least until we'll see about the invisible man. I'm like, Josh, I'm interested in seeing it interest enough that I'm now avoiding seeing any trailers for it next, next week I can go and just hopefully be surprised by everything they do in a good way. Yes. But the, maybe they're, they've come around to the, the idea that smaller is better. I definitely think that that's the way they should be thinking if they're trying to build a dark universe, because look at how successful the universe of the conjuring has been, right? Yeah. Yeah. James Wan film. That's got, you know, what do they have two or three sequels to that? And then they've got the Annabelle sequel. And then I just saw, what was the one I just saw? Well, the nun and the curse of La Llorona, which I can never pronounce are also part of that. The curse of La Llorona was brilliant. I really like that. Ta-da! And it's like, and there's, no things blowing up, <laughs> no yeah. people running away from or toward buses. There's none of that kind of stuff. And those are very successful. They must be because they keep making them and they keep expanding them. Well, I think part of that is just the sort of mindset you have. To, the mindset of the studios, right, is like you get a production house like Blumhouse involved because they have been successful making money off of very little, uh, very little by comparison to, say, Josh or I, maybe not. 
uh, by comparison to the hundreds of millions they spend on uh, you know a Marvel movie or whatever, yeah, that's one way to go. And I think that's part of the issue that came up with the Dark Universe Mummy, right? Uh, is that they had to spend so much money. They had Tom Cruise, they had Russell Crowe, they had these big, you know, big name stars and and they wanted to make this big spectacle. Well, you got to spend the money to make that happen, right? I don't know that too many people were going to go see a Tom Cruise mummy movie where through most of it, it was like quiet and brooding. I think you go to a Tom Cruise movie because you're expecting Mission Impossible 8. Running. Lots of running. So running. I think that's part of the, the issue, too, is just like marketing films nowadays. It's like uh, I think Blumhouse has sort of a sweet spot in that they can throw, say, $20 million at them and they're going to make that money back. Right. And then some maybe won't be a gigantic hit, although some of them have been. But if you're going to do something big and you need someone like Tom Cruise, well, you're going to spend 20 million just for his hair supplies. I think there's a lot of that at play in a lot of this, too, is is just the economics of Hollywood. I don't know. I think it's an interesting tack to go with the smaller movie, which I think could make some money. I, I think it really could. I think Universal would be really happy if they had a Marvel's level billion dollar movie kind of thing. Right. right. I don't know that they'll be quite as happy if they're just like they throw $20 million at a Frankenstein movie and, and it makes 50. And it certainly won't be their tentpole kind of thing anymore. Um, but they do like making money. I mean, this is the studio that does the Fast and the Furious. Right. Yeah, they like making money. <laughs> You brought up a, something else that you just said, though, kind of triggered something here. When we look at the original Universal Monster movies, their leads weren't these huge stars. Boris Karloff wasn't a known name. Lugosi was not even first on their list of people to bring in to play Dracula. Lon Chaney Jr. wasn't really the name that he became at that point, really. I mean, he had some other stuff behind him, but he wasn't the horror guy. Could that be part of the problem, too, is that we are casting a Tom Cruise, a Russell Crowe, the, the bigger names we need to focus more on, like the Elizabeth Mosses uh, of the world, and put her in The Invisible Man and see what happens. The moment you bank on a star, and I mean, it's not the 90s, right? You can't just throw Tom Cruise in a movie and expect that you're going to get $200 million on your opening weekend. You can't. It's just not how things work anymore, right? There aren't a lot of big movie stars like that anymore. I think throwing like an Elizabeth Moss into an Invisible Man movie and, like I said, spending probably 20 or $30 million is probably the way to go to hopefully build something, as long as it just doesn't become a fantasy island kind of thing. <laughs> You know, where it's suddenly like, okay, that was not right. Uh, and they just get it totally wrong. And they're, you know, just slapping a coat of paint on a name on it in the hopes of selling some tickets. Obviously, that's always the challenge uh, in trying to make money in the movie game these days uh, is it is not particularly easy. Not that it's ever been. But I think, like I said, if I go back to the 90s, I think when you had big name movie stars like Jim Carrey and stuff, that would just you throw Jim Carrey in a movie and they were going to make their budget back in that first weekend. Uh, I just don't necessarily think that exists anymore unless it is a Marvel movie, right? right? Like those are the only real sure things anymore. Maybe Star Wars, but even then people like to complain about that too much. So, Well, diminishing returns. The three most recent Star Wars films have gone down in terms of how much money they've made at the box office so far. Episode eight did great. I'm sorry. Episode seven did great. Eight did okay. Nine did less than eight, you know, so... You know, even then it's diminishing returns. I don't know how Fast and Furious does it unless they keep... Maybe the key is just cast a bunch of former wrestlers. Is that <laughs> probably, it? Probably. Like bring, bring in The Rock and John Cena. The key is that like, they're very entertaining and that 
you're getting kind of a known quantity with it. And if you like the last one, you'll probably like this one. And in some sense, that's similar to what Marvel is selling. And they have a history. People are willing to go and see the new Marvel movie at this point because Marvel has had 20 or whatever it is, whatever the number is right now, really successful, fun movies. For every person that goes, yeah, I didn't like Thor 2 very much, there's other people who go, what are you, crazy? That was awesome. So they have a history that supports a certain fan base. They know what that fan base is, and they're as long as you've got The Rock and Vin Diesel in it, you're going to kind of hit it every time, right? If you get that same crew back, you can keep making those movies that are going to, meet the expectations of, of what people want. And part of Universal's problem with monsters is they haven't been able to figure out what the people that like their monsters want. I think that's a really good point about the Universal monsters in particular, uh, is that I don't think anybody really knows who they're for anymore. You have sort of nostalgia freaks like ourselves who uh, like them for the nostalgia, but the, uh, let's be honest, we're not the target market anymore for going to the theater or spending a lot of money on stuff that you want to get the the young kids. It's the same problem they're having, you know, with Star Trek, you know, how do you make it appeal to younger and younger folks? Just because eventually we die off and they need, you know, it's like smokers. You need new uh, people to get hooked. And so I think to a certain extent, when it comes to (laughs) Universal Monsters is I think it's a weird spot because yes, you have sort of nostalgic people like us who would really love for someone to make a quality universal-esque monster-style monster movie. But I don't necessarily think that that's going to appeal to a wide swath of modern moviegoers, partially because... To college uh, students. Yeah, to college students, but partially because, you know, college students nowadays, they're so far removed from the universal monsters, uh, but also they have their own monsters. You know what I mean? They have their own things. They have the slashers, the, the, the supernatural monsters that you're now competing with. And so... To a certain extent, the Universal Monsters sort of represent old-fashioned things. And so you're fighting with that. You're fighting, I mean, as a filmmaker myself who makes nostalgic, you know, retro-style stuff, the one thing I fight with the most is trying to appeal to people who just are like, well, it's black and white, it's dumb. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You're always sort of fighting with trying to explain to people why old movies are awesome (laughs) and why they should be interested in new movies that ape old movies. It's strange, and I think it's uh, the Universal Monsters because they've been around for so long and are such a part of early Hollywood and, and beginnings of horror that eventually evolve into Grindhouse and Slashers in the 80s and all this stuff and the stuff they have now. It's like sometimes trying to convince people to listen to their great-grandfather's swing albums. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> how do you keep it interesting without losing the essence of what makes it awesome to begin mm-hmm. with. There has been reports that Universal is building a theme park area for their monsters in Orlando at the Universal Studios. I saw that. I don't know much about it other than there's also talk of a Super Nintendo world being included in the park, which is not Universal Monsters at all. <laughs> so I, I don't know much about it. Maybe that's a way to kind of get the monsters out there a little bit more and then see what happens there. It's not the first time a film has been inspired by a theme park, you know, just kind of, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they're taking Martin Scorsese's comments to, to heart <laughs> theme parks and, and Marvel movies. And I, I don't know. <laughs> it was interesting looking at the theme park notes that I saw and maybe they're going to, they've got a section there, an area sectioned off for, for the initial attraction, which is 
looking like maybe it's going to be some kind of a town square-ish thing, maybe with a some kind of a, a ride based on that. And then there's another area for future expansion, which people were thinking was maybe going to be some kind of a dark ride or a jungle ride or something like that. But there aren't a lot of full explanations of what they're thinking at this point but for me it would be wonderful if they created like a little section of Viseria there you know they had shops with the universal monsters and and some kind of a, a cool universal dark ride like Disney's haunted house would be just fabulous if they could pull that off oh, scare of the pit for the kids <laughs> yes oh that'd be great have Conliffs antiques as a gift shop on the way oh. out and you're good I mean come on it'd be great and, and like seven people would go yeah, to exactly. it. But still, yes. it would be great. <laughs> it would be us. <laughs> like us four. And then... <laughs> Part of the problem for them is the classic Universal Monsters, aside from the creature, are literally from the big band era. And even the creature is kind of pre-rock and roll, right? Yeah. yeah. And they haven't really had reboots of them since. Then. I mean, the original Captain America started before World War II, but they rebooted them in the 50s, and they rebooted them in the 60s into the, the Captain America that we all know and love today, and that got successful enough that it just kept going. But Universal hasn't really tried, aside from occasional outbursts, to reboot the monsters to bring them before a modern audience. You had the Wolfman film, right? which had a, a lot of cool stuff in it for me anyway, essentially depressing enough that I was like, okay, I don't think I need more of that. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to the original Wolfman, which has, has bittersweet feelings. And at the end you're like, Oh man, you don't think, Oh, thank God his suffering is over. You think, damn, Larry Talbot really got a bad deal to me. <laughs> On the other hand, we it's the end have, of the creature walks among us, right? He's going to die, but he's going to walk into that. that ocean. Walk into that ocean. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And I always like to think that he then remutates and, and readapts and becomes a creature again and goes back to the. That's just the your optimistic nature. I'm a pessimist. He dies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Josh, you get to be the, the tiebreaker. Does he live or does he die? Um, I don't acknowledge anything after the first one. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> In a roundabout way, I think you just dissed John Agar. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> how dare you, sir? <laughs> I can no longer be a part of this, Eric. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm out. I'm done. <laughs> so, this all said, we got two filmmakers here. How would you guys do it if you were to get a new universal thing to go? Just shot, you do? shot remakes with all my friends in it. Would Dan Shervin be the John Agar stand in? Please say yes. Come on now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who else would be? <laughs> Honestly, he gets though, to be, he gets I, to be all I, the square jawed leading men. Yes, yes, uh, <laughs> with just different pairs of glasses on. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, I I would probably start personally uh, with Frankenstein because I think there's a lot of effective creepiness in just the story of reanimating the dead that could be done for a modern audience and done well and and be effectively creepy without being say too gory, but you could work some gore into it. If you're talking modern audiences here and we're trying to appeal to them, I mean, you could do some body horror stuff, uh, but then playing up the, the sort of, you know, Frankenstein's monster as the sort of misunderstood, like what the hell is he kind of a, you know, I'm, I'm dead, but I'm not me. And I'm made of other people. What, what the hell am I? And then you have sort of that sympathy piece, but then also 
there are messages in there that you could work into using sort of modern ideas and, you know, where do people fit in and, and acceptance and all these things. And there's a lot of cool angles you could go with that. If we're going modern, I think, like I said, I'd start there uh, just because you can do some fun stuff. And there are spaces in the story for natural action sequences, right? That yeah, are, yeah. That are not the point of the movie, but would actually work out with, you know, the villagers chasing him and stuff. You know, it's just like suddenly they're onto him. They're trying to, you know, suddenly ICE is trying to get him. <laughs> <laughs> really modern. But no, seriously, something like that that you could work into it, I think would work. If I personally were to make, I would just make a cheesy 1950s Frankenstein movie. I know uh, you mentioned Mitch Gonzalez, but I'm going to throw this out there because I know he listens, but also because he's my homie. Uh, Mitch Gonzalez is the guy who makes all the monsters for me. Uh, makes all the masks for my films. And I brought up sort of the idea of what if we ever did a Mimiverse? And for those who don't know, that's my particular movie universe. A Mimiverse Frankenstein movie. And we talked about it a little bit. And, you know, he had some ideas. And and again, it would still be very 50s, 60s from my perspective of the ki- kinds of movies I make. If you were going to reboot them modern or if you could do anything, would you reboot them in, in your preferred period or... I mean, you could even reboot the monsters in the, you know, the 1890s or the 1910s or, you know, someplace uh, the way Cushing Horrors is between the two big world wars, which is kind of a a never, never land at this point. Right. Well, and I think 50s is a good era even for something like Frankenstein, because you do have the really the birth of the modern technological age. Uh, And so there's a lot of fear there with radiation and science gone amok fear of of scientists going to, you know, they're going to kill us all that, you know, you're playing with forces you shouldn't mess with. And I think there are a lot of ways to do it within that era that, that work. But even from a modern perspective, I mean, there's a lot of stuff uh, with genetics and, you know, AI and all these things that, that you could play into it. If you're really going from a modern route, you could make it work and play on modern fears of genetic manipulation or, or whatever. I would start there. Um, because that to me feels like the, the, the story you could easily shoehorn into any given era and make it work and use sort of whatever anxieties exist in that particular era to your advantage. Yeah. Well said. I mean, you, you kind of like stole my thunder that that's, uh, (laughs) it's, it's, it's the most easily, like you said, adaptable, I think out of all of them, because I think for me personally, I mean, it's, how we were talking about modern audiences. I think me and Chris were so far removed <laughs> from the modern audience. I mean, talking about the action and then the big special effects and it's the fisto bats. And, and that is just so <laughs> far beyond at least how I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm me and Chris have similar minds in that, that regard. So when we first started discussing this just through messenger, I was like, Oh, I'm the wrong person to ask how to update this for a a modern (laughs) audience. But say I'm given the keys to the kingdom and universal for some reason has it in their contract that it's Josh Kennedy has absolutely no one to answer to. He's George Lucas making the star Wars prequels go here's, you know, $10 billion. (laughs) Go, go, go do what you need to do. Working backwards and working completely with the wrong mindset, working against modern audiences. I would, I because I love the gothic 
hammers. If if that isn't, you know, if you didn't know that, um, just so you know. Uh, <laughs> really? That, that's something? Huh, yeah, I yeah. I never would have guessed. <laughs> Amazingly. And I really enjoy what Hammer was doing with the Universals back. I mean, they weren't really, I, could you call them reboots? I'm talking when they, they they hit that Universal contract and they brought out Curse of the Werewolf and then they were doing Evil Frankenstein. It was almost like their own mini remakes of what came before. They were remakes, but they weren't remakes. They were re- they were reimaginings. Reimaginings, yes. Stuff. There you go. Yeah, I, I'm giving the keys to the kingdom. I do that. What different stories can we tell in the Gothic era of you know the Invisible Man? Gothic. How how do we how do we just messing in that that world? And it goes against everything that modern audiences are looking for. It's going against the whole Marvel thing. I think that would, that's my perfect scenario. It's like okay, let's let's really do some damage in the gothic area and let, let's, you know, what if Creature from the Black Lagoon was a gothic film? It's just, I, I just, that's my mentality. Um, so you'd go for what, like 1890 or, or even earlier than that? No, like eight, 1896. That, that was like the prime. And then not even thinking of connecting them right now, just, just individual films of, yeah. of that. Yeah, I, that, that's my kid in the candy store dream. And like I said, trying to update it for modern audiences, Chris, you, you nailed it. it. I think Frankenstein would be, that's the, the sweet spot for a modern retelling, uh, a uh, updating to the, the modern age. Thoughts, ideas? <laughs> well, I think you both nailed it with Frankenstein being the way to go, even though Dracula is kind of the one that started it originally, mm-hmm. if you look at the talkies. But I think if you do a Dracula thing, that comes with so much baggage Yeah. Now. You know, the, all the vampire, I mentioned Twilight earlier, you know, all the vampire stuff, it, it comes with a lot of baggage. Well, that's why I wonder if, if setting it in the modern day is actually their best bet. I mean, if I were uni- Universal, I'd seriously consider doing what Joshua said and set it back in the 1890s. You know, I mean, people are still making little women. People are still making <laughs> sense of sensibility, right? There was even, you know, sense of sensibility with zombies or Whichever one that was, which was actually a fun That'd film. That'd be Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Sorry. Prejudice with zombies. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. Sense and Sensibility has vampires. There's like a whole series of those books. But, yeah. but that was a. So people clearly aren't totally opposed to going back and seeing period pieces. And I think if you did a period horror piece well, yeah, you're going to spend a little more money on the costumes and you're not going to be able to shoot it down on the corner. But the pre-high-tech era, I think, is more fertile for the kind of monsters that Universal is famous for, with a possible exception of the creature from the Black Lagoon. It's hard to be afraid of monsters in the modern era when cops are walking down the street with submachine guns, right? Yeah. We all have cell phones. (laughs) We all have cell phones. We have a lot of technology that the uh, classic monsters would fail to. I mean, you just watched the Monster Squad, yep. Steve, and I mentioned this when we covered it just a couple weeks ago. I'm a big fan of that film, but I'm so disappointed the way the Gill Man goes out. It's just a shotgun to the chest. Boom, Boom that's it. No yeah, more. I know. You don't have to do anything other than that. There's no silver bullets. There's no wooden stakes. It's just, just shoot them and you're good. You know, and with today's tech, I mean, that was in the 80s. Today's tech, like you said, submachine guns, uh, the SWAT teams using, you know, former military gear, you know. Right. 
the monsters aren't really going to be a threat unless you do something to them as well. And then how far do you take right. it before you lose the identity of what they are? And then, and then you end up having to have fist of bats or have, have the mummy swallow half of London in a sandstorm. Which, you know, it's like, okay, I guess you can't fight that with an automatic weapon. So maybe, rather than doing monster horror then, we should do monster horror back in an era when monsters really could be terrifying. When you couldn't just pull the thing out of your pocket and call the cops, you know, and maybe you're better off. And, you know, sometime 1950s or earlier, you know, or maybe even 60s if you want to go that far. Certainly 60s. I'll say this, though. There's a whole angle here we're not looking at for a modern version of Frankenstein, right? Is, okay, you have, obviously, the the sort of medical malpractice of someone reanimating the dead and creating a whole person out of spare parts, right? Right. Then, once he becomes alive and sentient, uh, you got the whole ennui and angst of, who am I? What am I? Am I all these parts? Am I just the brain? You know, that kind of thing. But then, and hear me out, we take it in a whole new direction where we bring in sort of a the man who fell to earth angle and he becomes a businessman and no I'm just kidding I'm just <laughs> I can't even go farther with this I, thought, I, I was kind of going with you I was like look where are we going <laughs> we're like wait a minute businessman are we now in, in Dracula AD 1972 <laughs> yes. hey now which I love hey now. I love that film in fact I like it more than you than most anybody I know, actually. But what I thought you were going to say, Chris, is if you're going to do it in the modern era, then you end up with the, well, is he now a patented life form? Does he belong to somebody else? You know, if I... (laughs) Monsanto owns him. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, Monsanto owns him. (laughs) Is is he alive? I mean, is he he really? I mean, you get... You bring the religious implications of it. You have people fighting against, you know, just like... he have civil rights? Droid, uh, you know what is he? You know, I mean, there's you bring in the the sort of social media aspect of it. You bring in the the media, just the sort of like you said, we have cell phones. This guy's suddenly like everywhere, and and people are like, holy crap, it's the monster. You know, is he just wants to be left alone? You know, and there's fire everywhere. I mean, it's just <laughs> <laughs> and there's fire everywhere. Okay, you can, you can do it. <laughs> I think it takes. I think it's harder to do it in the modern era than it would in the previous era. I think even the Conjuring stuff is set. Most isn't most of that when the Warrens were doing their investigations. That was mostly the fifties and sixties, right? They look modern in a lot of ways, but I think they're actually set. I think you're right. Like sixties, seventies, yeah. right? I worry uh, when you 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 take a, a story like that and you set it, uh, you know, in that time period and and. There have been a lot of uh, movies that have, say, remade the Frankenstein story, and they set it in that time period, and it just doesn't tend to do very well. And I think part of the problem is, is that to a certain extent, you're not updating it then. You know, you're just right. You're just retelling the story like uh, every version of Sense and Sensibility or every version of Emma they remake. You know, Little Women, it's in essence the same story. So you're you're not going there for something new. You're not going there for something that's going to build a universe you're going there to see a familiar story, like if you were to see a different production of Cats uh, at community theater, and then go see it on Broadway or whatever. You're you're there to bathe in the familiar, and I think that if you keep it in that era, there's nothing wrong with that, and there's a lot that could be done with it. But in essence, you're just making an adaptation of the book, right? Uh, you're not sort of thinking sort of more grandiose and like, how do we create a successful dark universe? Uh, I don't know if that's 
the way to go. I'm not saying completely modern works, but uh, I wonder if, if you in essence said it at the same time period as the original films and, and the book and all that, if not, if you're not sort of just, like I said, adapting it as opposed to trying to create something that can grow uh, and use them in new, interesting ways. Are you saying that's a cheat, Chris? I'm saying it's a cheat. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. But, the, you know, it could be that certain ideas work better in certain time periods than in others, that too. The Tom Cruise Mummy, I think, is a a study in how difficult it is to do that kind of thing in the modern era. And the the result was, well, if we can shoot machine guns at them, then it's not really horror anymore, then it's action. How do we make that horrible? And maybe we, you could do the, the kind of James Wan thing and make it a lot more atmospheric and limit the, uh, you know, limit the amount of firepower and stuff that would roll in at, at any time. I, um, right at the end of watching all the Valdemar Daninsky werewolf films, a number of which are set in the, the present time when he was making them, but almost always the character would be removed from modern society out in a, a rural place where bandits still roam the roads and that kind of stuff, even though they would drive cars, like they drive cars down the road and someone would be dropping a tree in front of the car and jumping out to try to ambush the people that were in the car and take all their money, which is not something that really was happening a lot in the 60s or 70s or early 80s when they were making these films. So by isolating the characters in a maybe perhaps a less technological setting maybe starts to make it creepier again and, and taking away the crutches that people have in the modern century. Even if you've said it in the modern century, if you're doing the Black Lagoon in the Amazon and it's away from where they're burning and clear cutting out in the Amazon where there is no cell phone service, I think you could probably make a really, really creepy creature movie. But if you take him out of that setting, then do we start to get Revenge of the Creature and he's in SeaWorld where people can look at him, which I love that film too. But it's a little bit less of a horror movie in some ways than the original. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Question about that, though, is that do you think some of the difficulty, uh, and I've thought about this before, some of the difficulty in making the classic Universal Monsters scary again is that they have been, pardon the pun, completely defanged by the fact that we're several generations removed from when they first appeared to the point that They've gone beyond being scary anymore uh, because they have become so commonplace and well-known that they've lost their edge. Put it this way, okay? Uh, they make children's movies about them, right? You have Hotel Transylvania, you know, about the monsters. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're, they're happy. They don't make, like, you know, Hotel Crystal Lake, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, cuddly versions of Jason and Freddy. So, you know what I mean? It's like, I wonder if to a certain extent, like I said, they've been defanged where the point it's like, it's very hard to make vampires that scary anymore uh, when you have what we do in the shadows. You know what I mean? Which yeah. is, sure. is hilarious. And I love the show, but it's like, to a certain extent, it has become parody to a certain extent. Well, that's not a recent phenomenon either. I mean, you had the monsters. You know, yeah, you had yeah. Count Chocula, yeah. you know, you, you have the Count on Sesame Street, you know, so you have, yeah, I, I see what you're saying there. It is, yeah, I'm waiting, those, for, maybe I'm that waiting to see a hockey mask wearing a uh, Muppet to be like, uh, you know, um, <laughs> talking about physical fitness, how you should run. <laughs> run. 
I love oh, that. Oh man, if somebody doesn't. Go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I, I love that 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 description that they've been defanged because that, that's like the perfect summation of them, I think. And to bounce off, Derek, you said that they come with so much baggage. The, the, you see mm-hmm. the title Dracula, you see the mummy. It's like, oh, okay, is this are they going to do? You see all at least me us as monster kids. You see. As soon as you see the title, you immediately see every single reboot and remake of the past, you know, 50 years. And it's like, okay, which one is it going to be? With In terms of the Dark Universe, do they just give, I don't want to say give up, but do they, like, Frankenstein, does it have to be Frankenstein? Can it just be another creature? But then it goes against the Dark Universe, the brand. You know what I mean? It's 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 a like a double edged sword because I de- defanged. That's like going to be my new favorite saying because that's that's <laughs> summed it up perfectly. Um, it's like, does it have to be the creature from the Black Lagoon? Can't it just be the Gill Man? Can't it just be you know the thing? Like as soon as we we remove Universal's the Mummy and it's just it's the walking corpse. It's it's title is defanged. Am I making any sense? It's it's they're they're scary at the most foundational without all the baggage and mm-hmm. I think at least Bride of Frank- they're, they're they're scary without the trademarks. Yeah, yeah, I, right. I, yeah, yeah, and that that's like almost part of the going up against a brick wall with this dark universe. It's like, well, we got you know we got Dracula. What can we do with Dracula? It's like, oh, oh, if he was just you know what. A vampire, a 5,000-year-old vampire who was horrifying. As soon as you take Dracula out, it's, it's at least for me, the possibilities open up. And that idea of them being defanged really, really struck me right now. That's, that's spot on. So the consensus is we must find a way to reboot Universal Monsters without actually using the Universal Monsters. <laughs> we can't call them the Universal Monsters. Uh, and they can't be the actual universal monsters, but they must be in every way possible the, the universal, universal monsters. monsters. Yeah, <laughs> we could do that on our own without Universal. <laughs> yeah, Dracula and Frankenstein are in the public domain. There really was an Egyptian named Imhotep. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. One of the things I liked about the the Mummy reboot was that they were not using Aris or Imhotep. Yes, but they yeah. they were using uh, a female mummy. That had a whole new story. And I thought that had a lot of potential. And I thought when we weren't having the big action sequences, when we were having the sequences where there's the crashed in the plane or something, and they're in the kind of a swampy area under some piers or something, and the cops are looking for bodies. I thought that sequence was very creepy. I and thought so too. I actually thought that that of the entire movie, that was the most effective use of the horror elements of it. I'd be like, okay. I remember seeing in the in the theater and being like, yeah. "Okay, you know, if this whole movie's like this, I'm on board here." Yeah, but that's yeah. just only right. part of the movie that's like that. Well, I thought the sequence underwater later, near the end of the movie, was quite creepy too. Where you have the undead creatures under, underwater, the heroes, Tom Cruise and the woman, are are in the water, and the, the monsters that don't need to breathe are under the water, and they've got like six inches of breathing space. And the bi- I thought that was a very creepy sequence too. So there, there's stuff there. I thought it would have been more effective had they done it more like the zombies of Mora Tau, where they just had, like, you know, no actual water. <laughs> it looked like water. And <laughs> Wet for dry, I understand. Breathers would just be like literally bubbles. 
they need that machine that they made for that Julie Adams movie where they filled the bubbles with, they had a soap bubble blower, but they had hydrogen in it. So when they blew the bubbles, it was blowing little hydrogen bubbles up so they would float. <laughs> it might have been healing. <laughs> and they would float up so it was made it look like they were underwater. See? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm saying that. <laughs> Drive for wet. Yeah, dry for wet, not day for night, dry for hey, wet. Yeah. Dry for wet. <laughs> I like that. Anyway, I think you could do it. I think maybe you have to abandon some of it. Maybe the Wolfman is not going to be Larry Talbot. Although, you know, spoiler alert, if you guys have seen Penny Dreadful, I thought Penny Dreadful handled the monsters really well and was very creepy and did have Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein. And it was, was set in the past. And they had the Wolfman character who, again, last spoiler alert, guys, does turn out to be Larry Talbot. Oh. <laughs> How'd they get away with that? I assume they licensed it. So none of you guys watch this. Sorry. I yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> now I've really given it away. But, but, you know, I thought that the way they handled all the monsters in that was really, really well. That was kind of a, you know, a single guy with a vision thing. Have you guys seen the Dracula series on Netflix? Not yet. No. No, none of you? Okay. No. I've heard nothing but terrible things. Yeah, me too. <laughs> this is one of those times when they, I feel like they did try to do something different with Dracula. Mark Gaddis was behind it. Gaddis is one of us. He does a, a really cool documentary or two about uh, British horror and folk horror and things like that that I've seen that are great. And he loves this stuff just as much as we do. But his take on Dracula, again, he tried, I feel like they tried to do something a little bit different with it, but because we have these preconceived notions or baggage about Dracula, it's kind of hard to accept. I did like some of the things in the first episode, but it went downhill from there. And the third episode where it's set in the modern day, I really struggle with because how do you do Dracula in modern day? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's hard. Yeah. 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 And it just, there wasn't enough time and, and space given to that particular story to breathe, to do that. Would it have worked if it wasn't, to talk about Defanged, if it wasn't Dracula and it was just, you know, Count Valentine's Day card? I mean, <laughs> if it, was, it was Count Chocula. Would it have worked? <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, is it because it was Dracula, did it fail? And like you went in with, or was it just, it just didn't work if it was any vampire? You know, that's a really good question. I did like parts of it. And what I really did like about it was their take on Van Helsing, Mm -hmm. the Van Helsing character in the first two episodes. Anyway, I really enjoyed, and I'm not going to say much more because I don't want to spoil it or anything because it is pretty recent. So with Dracula, I would it work with somebody else. Would it work with like a Varney, the vampire or (laughs) count Orlock? Yeah. Count man. That'd be kind of cool. Actually. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think you have to have it be like the big bad vampire to make it work. And that's Dracula. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So and the other thing you can do is you can start, you know, and you don't want to do this too much or you lose it. You can start stripping away what you think are the inessential parts of the, the mythos that have built up. I mean, since the original universal monsters, when the original universal monsters started, they had kind of the, original mythological folklore kind of set of things about them. But when we suddenly get up to Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, we not only have the original Dracula, the vampire myths, the original Dracula book, but we've also got the stuff that Dan Curtis has added to it. And everyone else had that had a good idea for Dracula has added onto it. And then we get a film where they're maybe setting Dracula up to be the hero of the story rather than the villain with Dracula untold. 
And maybe they should have set him up to be the villain. And maybe that if you're going to have Dracula be the villain, you want the Lugosi Dracula that's in Abbott Costello meets Frankenstein, who's trying to run an evil scheme and control the other monsters and that kind of stuff, which is not too different in some ways from Stephen Summers' Van Helsing Dracula. Although that yeah. Dracula is, you know, a, not the same Dracula, which is kind of admirable in a way. As we're talking about Dracula, I'm trying to rack my brain. Like, how do you make him scary to modern audiences, right? What's what's the motivational angle to make it actually frightening in some way? I started thinking... Maybe what you do is you, you need to play up the force of nature angle of it. And you have a man who's, who's, in essence, become immortal, who maybe when he starts having to drink blood, it's like, God, this is horrible. I'm, I'm killing people. I hate this. And he feels awful about it. But given enough time, you get used to it enough. But also, your brain starts to break down because you're immortal. You start doing stuff in there that, uh, you know, you would become kind of frightening, if you sort of take that angle of the vampire thing of I'm immortal, I can't really be killed easily and I have to kill people. Uh, and eventually you just wouldn't care anymore. Uh, well, and so you become you, kind of an immortal sociopath at that point. Exactly. So that in this day and age would work because, you know, um, I think a lot of people in uh, the world are learning what uh, a sociopath is how it can affect other people uh, when you have people with, say, power and money uh, with no empathy. And I think there's an angle there. And then you add in the sort of the angle of, of the fact that he kills people and drinks their blood and, and, you know, just doesn't care. It could make him much more frightening. I always, I always find things more frightening when it's something you can't necessarily um, reason with or understand. Right. Things that are outside of your the realm of your reality so far that logic breaks down and uh, it becomes sort of a very, very basic, very base fear of that which you don't understand. It's it's you know fear of things in the dark. What is it? I I, I can't see it. I don't know what it is. I think some of the best monsters are those, uh, especially that you can't necessarily understand. And you can't reason with, you can't fight against, they become forces of nature. Uh, and I think that's what, to go to some modern movies again, um, I think that's where some of the, say, Halloween reboots really fail in trying to make you feel sorry for Michael Myers. To a certain yeah. Extent. As soon as you try to understand them and you humanize them to a certain extent, they stop being scary. You know? Yeah. Um, yes. As soon as you try to explain it away, explain the fact that, Michael Myers is the shape and is a force of nature. As soon as you like, oh well, he was he bullied when he was a kid, so that's why he's like, oh no, you're 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 humanizing him, you're 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 right. defanging him, you're defanging him. You take away Wasn't the he scarier when he was the boogeyman. Yes, yeah. And you, you didn't know why he disappeared at the end of the first mil movie after clearly being killed. Yeah, wasn't that really scary? And you, right. there's no reason you couldn't do that with Dracula. Derek, you were just talking about the Monster Squad on your show, and I just rewatched it because of that. There's the scene where they all converge downtown, and Dracula's got the object that he wants, and there's like the entire police force between him and what he wants. And he just walks through them, essentially. They come at him with everything they've got, but he's a vampire. There's only one way to kill him, <laughs> and they right. don't have it. It's a even for a kids movie. It's really kind of scary to see these fully armed and armored cops walking up to him, and he just 
hits him with the back of his hand and they crumple to the ground dead, right? Right. That's a scary idea in, in the modern day, even. You know, even when you have tanks and when you have submachine guns and all that kind of stuff, if all that's going to kill that vampire is a stake through the heart, if you catch him in his coffin at the right time of day, that could be very scary. So there's that potential. You know, we've talked out Frankenstein a little bit, and we've talked out Dracula a little bit. I mean, maybe there's there are ways that the other monsters could become as scary in the modern day, too. But I, I think it needs more work than Universal has seemed to want to put into it right. at this point in the yeah. planning and, and decision-making stage if they want to do it. You know, I think part say. of that problem may also be that they're, again, trying to simplify things to make them appeal broadly. And I think that the way to make them work from a modern perspective is you can't simplify yeah. them. You almost have to make them more complex. You have to find out, okay, what makes them scary and how does that then apply to modern sensibilities? How do you get under people's skin and actually, you know, affect them in some way? And just having uh, Tom Cruise running, it just doesn't work. <laughs> and honestly, I'll say, I didn't not like the mummy and I would honestly have, followed it wherever it took it if they did more because yeah, i did actually i did enjoy it i can and i honestly don't necessarily see why it it did as poorly as it did i, I never thought of it was going to be huge but i enjoyed it quite a bit and again i think maybe sometimes i just go into the movies and i'm like i'm just gonna just try and enjoy what this guy filmmaker is trying to do i don't want to be that guy who overanalyzes everything and being like well luke skywalker would have never done that well <laughs> Guess what? He just did. So guess what? He would do that because he just did in an official <laughs> Star Wars movie. So guess what? You can't you can't distance yourself from it. You can say Luke Skywalker wouldn't do that, but he just did. So it is something Luke Skywalker would do. I'm one of those people. I'll go to the movies and I just if I find myself entertained or at least taken on some sort of journey while I'm in that theater, it's a success. And so for me, I just I had a good time. In the end, it felt more like seeing almost like a remake of the Brendan Fraser mummy, honestly. Yep. And I didn't hate those movies. I saw them all in the theater and I enjoyed them. So it was just like, well, it is sort of what it is. And I did like Russell Crowe. I thought he was entertaining and could work. I think it laid some groundwork that could have been improved upon. And the other thing is my kids also, and they enjoyed it too. And sometimes you forget about these things is that, you know, my kids are the, the age that had they continued, probably would have really, really liked them and become more fans of it. Because ultimately, we're not necessarily the, the target audience anymore. And that's, again, to go back to part of the issue that they have is that the sort of nostalgic folks who are older are not the target audience anymore. We're not the ones with all the disposable income, per se. The kids, right? So you got to find things that appeal to kids these days. So how do you do it? How do you make you know, uh, Glenn Miller appealed to someone who likes, uh, you know, um, see, I'm, I'm so old. I don't, I can't even think of a rapper name right now. Uh, <laughs> Vanilla ice, baby. <laughs> wow. I was going to say Snoop Dogg. Like his dog's on that Martha Stewart show now. So see, that doesn't really work. Um, but you know what I'm saying is like, how do you make Glenn Miller uh, appeal to someone who likes modern music, like really modern electronic music? That's the real issue is Universal. They're trying to build theme parks. They're trying to get the, the teenagers money. It's, they're trying to make things that, that will appeal to kids who watch YouTube all the time. 
They're trying to appeal to a subset of, of kids who literally enjoy watching other people play video games on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how do you do it with something that's 100 years old? Yeah. Yeah, that is the question. <laughs> that, that's the question. I'm with you, Chris. I enjoyed that movie enough that I was disappointed when they said, well, okay, we're not going to go forward with the next one. I thought right. for all its flaws that there was still enough there to tweak and to work with and to make something that I thought would have been closer to what I wanted. And maybe therefore, you know, though, obviously I'm not the, the uh, audience in some ways, though our segment of the audience is the ones with all the disposable cash yeah. <laughs> that they, they could have brought it closer to something I wanted that would still entertain. What were you going to say, Josh? No, it's, it's uh, to bounce off of that. You said it in the first like five minutes of the conversation. I think we would all, even the people who who hated the Tom Cruise mummy, I think we all would appreciate if they just stuck. If they were going for that, stick to that, and let's see what the next one is, and see how you improve upon it. And I think the fact that they just abandon it just opens it up for much more hatred fan hatred is like well you know that, that, that. i was like well maybe in the, the second movie they improved upon the jekyll and hyde thing and then it started to work and you know, oh they, they let it yeah gave it time to breathe and and they they work some stuff if, if and you said that like in the first five minutes steve where it's like i wish they just stuck yeah. to one oh. if you're going to do dracula untold stick to that you know what i'll, I'll take the fist of bats if that means charles dance is the big bad in the whole thing i'm on i'm on board I love Charles Stance. Bats. I'll take the fist. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, and I, you know, I, I don't hide it or anything. I, I'm, a, I'm a wrestling fan. I watch a lot of pro wrestling, right? And what you guys are referring to is what we would call in wrestling like short-term booking. We don't think yes. that far ahead. If it doesn't work, we just drop it and start over. And that, to me, is kind of the worst kind of pro wrestling storytelling. Right. And that's kind of what's happening here. Uh, thank you for drawing that analogy for me, you non-wrestling fans. That, that, right. That's perfect. It's like something I read recently, just I think just today, um, is that they're thinking of rebooting the Planet of the Apes films again. Oh, my God. Oh, and, my God. I mean, honestly, I think the, the trilogy they did recently, I greatly enjoyed. I thought it was great. I thought they did a good job. And, and I did, too. Part of me is like, well, okay, why would you need to reboot from that? I mean, why can't you build off that? Because I felt like every movie got better, honestly. Um, with each film, it got better and better. And it obviously, they set the stage for going into actually remaking Planet of the Apes. Yeah, uh, within that universe. So why exactly would you want to start over again? So let's take what what we've got and not throw out, as the old saying goes, not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Figure out there's no reason you couldn't, even if the Invisible Man is kind of a restart reboot, there's no reason you couldn't take the best things out of Dracula Untold. Maybe the best thing is Luke Evans. We think he's a really cool Dracula. Or maybe the best thing is Charles Dance, and we think he'd be a really cool cool master villain. Come on, we know what the coolest thing was. <laughs> and what was it, Chris? It would be the Fist of Bats. <laughs> the Fist of Bats. <laughs> Just counting the Fist of Bats and the giant sandstorm that could swallow London. Let's take, take those the monsters. Let's, let's take the continuity breaking things out of those and, and use the good parts. You know, unless unless in the third film we want to have Dracula versus the mummy and it's the fist of bass versus the sandstorm that swallows London. We could do that. The bats but just go no in reason. and slap the sandstorm away. I mean what I mean 
<laughs> there you go. That's what yes. it is. The fist of bats lays a slap on the mummy face in the sandstorm, and then we get a big roll around fight of bats and sand. Let, let's be clear. Let's be clear. It's not fist of bats. It's fist, fist of apostrophe bats. bats. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. TM. Yeah. So, so just, and well, you know, you keep saying TM. I just checked. There is no trademark on it. Oh. We can take it. We can do it. <laughs> go for it, Derek. <laughs> now, see, what I want to see is that faces in the sand come up and then the fist of bats come up and then just poke them in the eye three, 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 three. <laughs> the boink, you know, just, there you go. Yuck, yuck, you know? yuck. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we've been chatting for almost two hours now, so I want to start winding down. Uh, I don't know if we really came to any kind of there. conclusions here, but. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Uh, Fistabats.com is available. <laughs> hey, man. Yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to interrupt, Derek. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. So, yeah, we've been chatting for a little while. I don't know if we really kind of came to any conclusions. Not that Universal's going to listen to us anyway. It's just kind of fun to hash these things out and, and talk about these things that are important to us. Two fellow creatives, and, and you guys... I mean, I love all of us in the Conservancy, uh, of course. You know, Mitch is awesome. Jeff and Rich are awesome. You guys are the ones that are actively creating fiction on a regular basis. And I wanted to chat with you guys and see what your take was on what was going on with it. Nothing here, in my opinion, that can't be fixed if they wanted to fix it. And there's no reason that they couldn't go back and look at their initial precepts and try to tweak things so that they would work better for the audience that they're trying to hit. But if the audience they're trying to hit is the Indiana Jones action adventure audience, I'm not sure that that's the universal monster audience. And the, the Brendan Fraser movie was just kind of a fluke. The first one, especially, which was a big hit. I don't know. Did the second one do as well? But clearly the third one didn't do as well, even though I like yeah, that. Better it it also had the some of the worst rubbery uh, Scorpion <laughs> King CGI ever. Oh, God. Oh, yeah, there is that. Yeah. <laughs> but that movie did give us The Rock. That was his first it film, was. wasn't it? It, it, it was, was his first movie. Good things came of it, I guess. All of us want Universal to succeed and make more cool monster movies, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> That would be great. I'd like to see it. Thank yeah. you, man. So here's what I'm thinking. Here's what because I'm on the trademark website again, and I told this to Steve at one point and somebody else as well. The trademark for the words "creature from the Black Lagoon" expired in 2004. Oh, nobody owns the trademark to that. So let's do an all for you know an all for George gooey film collaboration. <laughs> Steve and I will help write it, you know, and I'll do some splish splash sound effects. <laughs> and, we'll ma- and we'll make our own creature from the black lagoon film and show everybody how it's done right all right i'll get the kickstarter started tonight what- well i would like to proudly announce that uh while we've been recording this i am now the proud owner of fistabats.com <laughs> <laughs> and that's the home page for the creature from the- <laughs> <laughs> Makes no sense, but that is in fact the home page oh man i love it i, love I almost it. want to just completely spend you know two years of my life making a movie that's just called fist of bats. Just, just because of this conversation, <laughs> I will write that movie for yeah. you. <laughs> this, this is the true collaboration here, right? Steve, right? This is it right Take here. It. This is it. All right. My job here is done. I'm so glad after saying fist of bats for like the last four years and finally caught on. <laughs> <laughs> So final thoughts or just kind of promoting your guys' stuff. 
I mentioned it at the top of the show. Um, Josh, what are you up to now? You're making like two movies at this point, right? Oh, I think it's we're at four right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and for some reason, it's it's like, I mean, what a terrible analogy. Like like a, an addict or something. Like, I, I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta have more. I gotta make more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's uh, maybe not the best analogy in the world. But yes, and, and <laughs> say again. I'm saying, but it's fitting. I get it. But you get it. Yeah, you totally get it. I get it, it too. <laughs> it's all, all good stuff. And Fist of Bats, maybe hopefully 2021. <laughs> Just add that to the list. <laughs> You've been posting these mock publicity shots from Mantipus that I am adoring on Facebook. Oh, yes. So listeners, <laughs> oh, follow good. Josh on Facebook. Oh, my God. How have I not seen these? <laughs> it's the Facebook algorithm. So I missed that one. I, wow, cool. I can't wait. And to bring it all, it all ties back together. Mitch is is making the the mantipus once he finishes moving into his house or whatever he's he's up to right, right now. On. Mitch Gonzalez. It's it's, all, it's it's slowly inching towards you know a, a Mimiverse gooey collaboration. But just a bats. <laughs> that's 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 one will happen. <laughs> I think that's just we're just going to have to start there. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Chris, you've got a premiere coming up. April 29th, I'll be releasing the next movie called uh, The Phantom Lake Kids and the Beast Walks Among Us, which is, I, I, did, I had to do a Something Walks Among Us at some point, right? That's movie 15, uh, which I'm quite proud of. Uh, I, know, I know Josh is like on 48 or something like that, but still, <laughs> I'm very proud. Um, we are too, uh, And then on top of that, I'm... I'm 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 shooting another one called uh, That Which Lurks in the Dark. And I was actually going to say, Mitch is finishing up the monsters for That Which Lurks in the Dark and then moving into Mantibus. So that's what he's doing right now. In the same time as he's moving into a new house. So he's busy. Um, and then I'm working on a, 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 a Mimiverse holiday special. Uh, my little tribute, tribute to the Star Wars holiday special. Uh, I even am going to randomly put uh, someone singing a song in it. Sweet. <laughs> It's going to be good. <laughs> sure. I'm sure it will in the end. When, when did you make the, the first one? 2009? Uh, in 2006. I started making it in 2005. So the first one was released in 2006. So it's been 14 years, but you got to include 2006 as the first year. So this is movie 15. Congrats. Pretty darn cool. Yeah. It's, um, when you say it's an addiction, it absolutely is. It is. I'm so glad you feel the same. <laughs> Joshua, uh, what's your first film? What year did you make your first it's 2010 released film? 2010. So this is like the the 10 year mark. 2020. Nice. And still making. It's funny how this all comes back to octopus people. It was Attack of the Octopus People. Now it's Mantipus. So we had like a, a full come back to the roots. <laughs> That's awesome. You didn't list any of the, the films. You said you were making four films, but you only listed Mantipus, which was the one I don't know. Mantipus, Cowgirls versus Pterodactyls, which is basically done just waiting on the animation that's coming, the stop motion. And sound effects. <coughs> Sorry. Sorry. And sound effects. <laughs> Mantipus, Cowgirls, and uh, Saturnalia, Saturnalia, which is a kind of bit of a different route for me. It's a comic book character who comes alive out of the comic book and starts running amok in the town so it's more lighthearted and comedic than anything that i've done so far and the other one is uh i'm trying to get the hammer ladies back together 
to do not not a sequel to House of the Gorgon, um, but a similar type film in that vein. Can't can't say too much because there's still a lot of things up in the air, but that's the goal. I thought for a moment Saturnalia was going to be your Fellini film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it could be. There's still, still a lot to be shot. <laughs> And after that, after that, Josh, it's it's Fist of Bats. Yes. Uh, and then in keeping with the octopus theme, you could do a sequel to Fist of Bats. It would be Fist of Puss. Okay, then. <laughs> well, then I'm set for the next you know, three years, then. So here you go. Well, for you, that's six months. Come on, let's. <laughs> so again, the premiere is on, what, on the 29th, you said, um, of April? Yep, April 29th. Where's it going to be? So people can maybe find it. Uh, it'll be at the Heights Theater in Columbia Heights, Minnesota, which is just on the outskirts of the Twin Cities, north of Minneapolis. Uh, the Heights is the longest continuously running theater in uh, Minnesota. It dates back to the silent era. Still has a working Wurlitzer in it. It's great. It's a wonderful cool. Art Deco theater uh, that we've done all our premieres at. Tickets are on sale, and I'm going to say that right now. If you feel like joining us, we actually have uh, been selling... I think I have the most, the highest number of out-of-towners coming to this premiere than I've ever had, which is kind of cool. Uh, or they're just buying tickets and not going to show up, but <laughs> it works for me, honestly. As long as uh, the money is there, that's okay. Right. And I do want to say, uh, advanced tickets are selling very quickly because part of this is we have this, uh, this has a, a pretty big cast, and the cast... Uh, the main characters are all kids, so they're all inviting their friends and all that stuff. So we're we're selling out quickly. So if people want to come join us, uh, I would highly recommend people getting advanced tickets, which you can do on my website at sainteuphoria.com. All, sell, all spelled out. If you can't remember that, go to phantomlakekids.com, and that'll get you the same same spot. Or Fist of Bats. <laughs> and Monster Kid Radio will be at that event, at the premiere. So... Another reason to go. I'm so excited that Derek finally gets to come to one of my premieres after all these years because uh, I always I always try to talk about the premieres of, of my movies because it's, it's sort of the best place to see them because you're usually in a room full of people who really like them. So the, the just the energy level uh, and the atmosphere of this cool theater. Uh, and then you get to see the stars of the film and stars of my other films. So if you know my movies, you'll see other random people from other movies just walking around and you can talk to them and hang out. And it's just a good time. It's just a fun night. And we, we try to do it up old school Hollywood premiere style. We all get dressed up. It's like the one time a year I'll wear a tie. <laughs> well, you didn't tell me I had to get dressed up, man. Uh, you, you don't have want to, it. But, but I, I, I just make a point to. I'll be wearing my Monster Conservancy shirt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, so okay. Someone's got to represent. So there you go. And before the premiere uh, on March 9th, Monster Day? March 9th. Yes, Monster Day. It's the um, March 9th, 2006 was the year that uh, Monster Phantom Lake was released. Uh, and so I always mark that on the calendar as Monster Day. And I'm just trying to, you know, obviously I want people um, thinking about my movies, but also just, you know, it's a nice, cool day of the, the year to, to celebrate your favorite movie monsters. Yep. Um, be it uh, Universal Monsters or one from one of my movies or one of Josh's movies, uh, whatever it is, it's an excuse to to post about uh, the monsters you love. Not that any of us need an excuse. I was going to say, do we need an excuse here? Come on. <laughs> Every day do. is Monsters Day. Some folks do. And Steve, what's the latest on Professor Cushing's? Before I do that, I want to backtrack just a little and ask Chris if he is ready to release his Roku channel to the public yet. 
Yes, actually, thank you for bringing that up, Steve. I, I currently have a Mimiverse Roku channel. It's called Drive-In Monsters, the films of Christopher R. Mim. Uh, I use Drive-In Monsters simply because if you have no idea what a Mimiverse is, uh, you might know what a drive-in or a monster is. So why they're linked, you'd probably be interested in watching my movies. Right now, as it sits, every movie on there is more or less free to anybody. Eventually, it will be commercial run. However, uh, I can't do that until I get at least 100 people to go on there and give it a star rating. So if you're listening, find Drive-In Monsters on Roku and please give it a star rating so that I can get at least 100 people to give it a star rating, whatever you want it to be, so that I can then maybe approach advertisers. I don't want to make it like a, a paid streaming service. I don't want people to have to have another paid streaming service. So if I can get it to be commercial run, it's, it's the best of both worlds because then you can watch all my movies and you know just have to watch a few commercials here and there until I get enough people to actually install it and watch a few movies and give it a star rating. So thanks for bringing it up, Steve. Everyone check it out. Okay. Chris and I are also working on a, a number of three different projects, that none of which is probably quite ready to be announced yet. <laughs> Not quite, but there's some good stuff. But they are, and, the, and hopefully sometime in the next year we'll be able to start talking about them and, and maybe showing people stuff from them. So Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is on my site. It is finished. You can read the whole thing for free, but sometime in the next couple of months, I hope to have it out in print and ebook form as well on Amazon. You'll have to watch for that right now. I've uh, finally caught up on a lot of other stuff. So Dr. Cushing is out there. It will be coming up very soon in print as will at least the first book in the Frost Arrow series, which is currently running on my website as well. For those of you that are interested in what my version of the dark universe might be like dr cushing is actually kind of that in some ways because it's got a vampire werewolf and a mummy as well as uh two cute psychic twins and their eccentric father who uh, goes around the world collecting weird artifacts for his museum so there's that and then i'll be at some point this year soon I'm going to be writing something new, whether it's going to be a sequel to Dr. Cushing or more Frost Arrow or even a sequel to Daikaiju Attack. I'm not sure yet. It's going to depend on what my patrons want, what people that uh, are my fans want, I think. New stuff coming soon and the old stuff finally out in print for those of you that love print things or love to read on your Kindle. Uh, that will be happening sooner rather than later. Hopefully... Maybe not before spring comes, but certainly before spring ends. I hope knock wood. Sounds good. I'll make sure there are links to everybody's websites in the show notes. And yeah, I just want to thank the three of these guys for doing this with me and um, giving me about two and a half hours of content to edit and turn into a show. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Derek? What are you up to? What am I up to? Uh, this. <laughs> <laughs> I've mentioned this on Facebook and on Twitter. I've been dealing with some uh, mental health stuff, but I'm coming out of it and I'm able to finally get done and get into some of the things that I need to uh, finish. I need to get to work on Josh's film, doing the sound effects and some editing on that. And Josh, you and I need to talk at some point about that. Uh, For sure, yeah. I no am going to potentially, hopefully, fingers and tentacles crossed, have another Mark Temple collection of short stories available at Monster Bash. 
Yes. That's, that's the plan there. And uh, let's see, I have an article about the film Dracula versus Frankenstein appearing in an upcoming magazine, but I don't know when it's coming out and I haven't gotten paid yet, so I don't want to say what it is yet. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that'll but be coming you, up here you soon. You and I are going to talk about that Yes, film we are. Yes, we are. Later this week. And I don't know if that's going to appear on MKR before or after this, but if after, go back and find it. If yep. before... I'll let Wait people know. I'll let people know. Uh, and I'm expanding my presence on YouTube. I've launched the It's Pronounced Cook YouTube channel as my kind of non-Monster Kid radio stuff. Right now, all I'm doing is reviewing Lego Masters on Fox because I love me some Lego. Uh, that's about it. That's what's going on with me right now. So thanks for asking, Josh. You're welcome, Derek. Cool. <laughs> and I wish all of us could end up in an actual room together sometime soon. So I know Josh can't make it up for the Memoverse premiere, but I don't know if we're all going to make the Monster Bash this year or not. And then after that, I think I'm going to be tired of traveling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got a bunch of traveling to do in the first half of this year. So I say we all go out to where Derek is. Come out here to Portland? Josh and yeah. I show movies. We all stay at his well. place. We make a weekend of it. Come on, let's do so- it. So <laughs> fist of bats. We, we, we ride it out. We plan it out. Yeah, I'm in the, we the just fist we need of bats to get for a weekend pick us up in the Midwest and we write fist of bats. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. Let's do I it. I think I could do that too. <laughs> Derek, we're okay. coming to you. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> the best place to find Josh online is to follow him on Facebook. He's got a page set up. It's called Joshua Kennedy. Man of the Arts. There will be a link in the show notes. There will also be a link to Stephen D. Sullivan's website. That's sdsullivan.com. And you can find your way over to Christopher R. Mims Mimiverse and all the movies he's got going on over there by just going to sainteuphoria.com or fistobats.com. Yeah, he, he really did buy that. And it really does redirect you to the page for his upcoming movie, The Beast Walks Among Us don't know if this is really something that I should address, but I'm going to anyway. I was just talking with Chris earlier tonight before I recorded this intro outro section, uh, asking him if he still plans on having the premiere, considering what's going on in the country right now with the coronavirus and COVID-19. As of right now, he's still planning on holding the premiere. It is eight weeks away at this point, but if things get bad, he may try to push it back. Stay tuned to SaintEuphoria.com because I'm sure that's where he's going to announce it if there are going to be any changes. In the meantime, maybe I'll see you at the premiere for The Beast Walks Among Us. Huge thanks to my three fellow round tableists. Is that the right word? Whatever. I had a great time chatting with you guys. This was awesome. We need to do this again. Maybe make it a semi-regular thing that we do here on Monster Kid Radio. Maybe once a quarter? Maybe, maybe even rope in some of the other Monster Conservancy members like Mitch, Jeff, or Rich. Listeners, what would you like to hear us all talk about? Leave me a note in the comments down below if you're watching this on YouTube, or leave me a note on Facebook, or send in some feedback. I'm going to give you some information on how to get a hold of Monster Kid Radio in a moment. I am Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, 
I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat, and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you, today? Tell he, me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms, and he made me drink. <laughs> Welcome to this month's meeting of the Classic Horrors Club. I'm Rich Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com and KCCinephile.com. And I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. Let's begin with a report from our Sergeant at Arms. Vince, are there any housekeeping details today? Once the door is locked, there's no way out. The windows have bars that the jail would be proud of, and the only door to the outside locks like a vault. There's no electricity, no phone. No one within miles, so no way to call for help. Uh, thank you for that very thorough report. As you all know, oh yes, we have a comment. It's time we started. We had better get on with it. Well, we're trying. As you all know, we're recording a new bumper for the podcast. So what testimonials can you give potential listeners? Yes, Al? I hope that as you listen to this, you are among your loved ones. Hmm, interesting feedback, I guess. Vince, what do you think he means by that? So many unexplainable things have happened here. You're not really selling it, guys. Chris, how do you think fans of classic horror, from Silent Screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, will feel after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? In the first moments, every muscle, every fiber will be afire with torment and agony. In the days to come, you will pray for death. Come on, doesn't anyone have something good to say about the Classic Horrors Club podcast? Yes, Bela. Well, this isn't a very pleasant way to entertain a guest. <laughs> At least someone's having fun. Let's adjourn on a high note. Al, would you like to sign us out? This concludes our danse macabre. Eloquent as usual. Thank you. Please join us for the next monthly episode of the Classic Horrors Club podcast, available where all fine podcasts are found. It's all new. The creature walks among us, more terrifying in human form. Striking at the heart of the city with inhuman fury. (laughs) 
the creature walks among us. Horror unleashed by the daring of man and a dangerous experiment of science. I have burned away the outer scale. There's a structure of human skin underneath it. The creature walks among us. The grimmest cargo ever brought to civilization. Now a monster made even more frightful by human emotion. Plus Merle Oberon, Lex Barker in The Price of Fear. Two great thrill pictures on one program. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thanks for listening. Really appreciate you having you guys and gals along for the ride. I love producing this show, and sometimes I feel like I get too far away from the universal horror movies. I mean, these are the movies that made me a monster kid, and I think that happened for a lot of you as well, that without the classic universal monster movies, we just wouldn't really be into this the way that we are. And these movies are very special to me, even some of the ones that some might consider of lower quality, you know, they're just special. I love them. I love them so much. So to have an opportunity to talk about them in a roundabout way, you know, was a lot of fun. And going through and trying to find all the trailers for different Universal Monster movies to run in this episode, that was a real treat, too. And it made me realize that I haven't sat down to watch a Universal Monster movie in quite some time. So I'm going to have to change that. You know, when I'm done with this episode, maybe. And to do that, I need to tell you that you can find us over at MonsterKidRadio.net. Everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio is right over there, including our contact information. I mentioned that a second ago. If you want to email me, you can do so by emailing me at MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. There will be links to everything that we've talked about in this episode in the show notes as well. And like I said at the top of the show, information about how to vote for Monster Kid Radio for Best Multimedia and any of the other nominees and any of the other categories for the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards, that information is right there as well. I'll make sure there's a link to my book if you want to buy my book through Amazon. You can get it as a Kindle edition or an Undead Tree edition. I'll also make sure there's a link to the GoFundMe campaign that I still have open for my wife's dental surgery. You guys and gals have really helped put us way over the top with our goal there. And it means a lot, especially since we're fully expecting that by the time it's all said and done, it's going to cost a good couple thousand dollars to get the dental surgery done. So if you are able to do so, please consider checking out the GoFundMe campaign And at the very least, just kind of sharing the link, letting people know what's going on with it, that sort of thing. I did try to get a particular person on Twitter to retweet it. Didn't really work out the way that I wanted to. But if you're on Twitter, maybe you could tweet the link. And here's something exciting. The Patreon page. I'm revamping it. I know I've been talking about it for a couple of months now. By the end of this week... We should have things kind of worked out to where I have the private Discord set up for Monster Kid Radio patrons. That should be up and running. And if you are of a particular level in our Patreon campaign, I'll make sure you get an invite to the private Discord because I'd love to interact with you over there. So stay tuned for changes on that by going to patreon.com slash Monster Kid Radio. There will also be a link to our Tee Public shop when I 
revealed the logo or the cover art for this week's episode, my take on the Universal logo, just it says Monster Kid Radio and said, everybody on Facebook seemed to like it. And if you like it, you can order it. You can have it on a t-shirt, a sticker, a coffee mug, a hoodie. And every time you pick up something from our tea public shop, well, you're helping to support the show. And once again, I'm going to say it, and I mean it every single time. Thank you for your support. What's coming up next week on the show? Well, we've got somebody who hasn't been on the show in quite some time coming back. I am thrilled to have Joe Stuber from Comic Book Central coming back. And we're going to talk about, oh boy, this one's going to be fun. Abbott and Costello go to Mars. Today, the scientific world revealed its most closely guarded secret, the plan for man's first venture into the far reaches of outer space. Within our fuel range are the planets Venus and Mars. One of these should be our destination. And here is the super rocket poised for its historic takeoff. And there it goes, up, up, up into interplanetary space. And at the controls of this sky monster are the greatest scientists of this generation, Abbott and Costello. We're not going to the moon. We're headed for Mars. Who but Bud and Lou could get in such a fix? But first, they make a mess of a secret project. A wreck of the New Orleans Mardi Gras terrorize a city, and even get blamed for a ray gun bank stick-up. Now they're out of this world with laughter on a runaway rocket ship, and their misguided missile finally lands on the manless planet Venus. Manless? Oh, man. Make sure you come back in seven-ish days for that. In the meantime, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. The song that you heard at the beginning of the show and that you're going to hear in its entirety here in a second is called Teen Horrors. It is from the surf band Outer Sea from their self-titled album. Outer Sea is based out of Athens, Georgia. They gave us permission to play their music here on the show. You can find them at outersea.bandcamp.com and pick up their nine-track digital album for $9. I'll also make sure there's a link to their Distro Kid page because you can pick up their music anywhere. You can listen to it on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, Google Play, Amazon Music, Tidal, Deezer, Napster, MediaNet. I mean, it's all over the place. However you listen to it, though, make sure you let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name's Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week when we go to Mars with Abbott and Costello, kind of. Ciao.